Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. In developing policies and programs, federal officials need to integrate their constitutional and statutory underpinnings, and they need research and evidence on how the eventual program will perform and what work might have already occurred at another agency. For how agencies can best do all of this, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with Beth Martin, a digital services expert with the Office of Personnel Management, and with Basil White, a senior informaticist with the USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service. Basil White talks first about a network approach to programs and performance. The Integrated Value Network, or IVN, it's a schematic of programs, plans, metrics, regulations, and laws based on how they inherit authority from the U.S. Constitution and move each other forward. So for the IT folks, they might know this as a data schema of federal policy with the Constitution as its root node. So flowing down the legislative branch to laws and regulations and policy on that branch, and then down the executive branch to executive orders and policy that supports those orders. So IVN's a new approach to data architecture and policy analysis because we use a neural network to understand and communicate how those laws, regs, policy strategies, metrics, they all deliver business value to each other. And that visual representation looks like a bunch of nodes for each governance document, the arrows that show that movement of business value across them. So the intent of this is to increase situational awareness about the structure and interdependency of policy, improve command and control, discover unknown stakeholders through connections we didn't know, and improve visibility into that supply and demand and interdependency across requirements to deliver results to the citizen. So we're taking this approach to policy research now because uh, two affordances. One is the Evidence-Based Policymaking Act, which requires us to develop evidence-based research so that future policies, you know, emerge from standards of evidence-based practice and also the uh, availability of neural network technology and relational databases, you know, the price and availability of that is, is shifted significantly. Well, you know, it, it probably should be, but the Constitution isn't really referenced as much in our interviews as you would think, especially here at Federal News Network. Beth, what can you tell me about your role in this? Well, I have been collaborating with Basil on this effort before he came to USDA for a number of years. Basil is one of my oldest friends, and I did a detail at, or I'm sorry, a rotation at the performance.gov at the Performance Improvement Center. I became aware of things like performance measures and metrics, and Basil had initiated this at his former agency, and we caught up over a cup of coffee, and we knocked on a lot of doors. So... In the early stages, I was a cheerleader. And as our efforts knocking on different agency doors, you know, we did proof of concept, we did one-offs. We learned a lot along the way. And now that we have been collaborating with Jason Traquer at uh, USDA Animal Plant Health Inspection Service, my role has more solidified in terms of the overall product, which is the relational database, but looking at it using my lens in user experience, digital experience, customer experience, because yes, we are creating this platform, but no one ever says, wow, you have a really awesome database. What they're interested in is what it can do for them, whether they're a senior leader who needs to make a decision and the information across these different priority areas that we have can help answer those questions 
or if someone is doing some analysis because there's a, a decision that needs to be made at a lower level in terms of do we have all of the right people in the room? What are we missing? What What is the universe of what we need to know? We're speaking with Basil White. He's with the USDA Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service. And that you just heard from Beth Martin. She's a digital services expert with the Office of Personnel Management. Basil, you talked a little bit about what this initiative looks to accomplish. What were some of the issues that it was trying to resolve? Were, were you running into roadblocks when it came to you know innovative concepts and all the good stuff that you just mentioned? Well, originally it was is it's kind of hard to communicate the intent and what it is and how it works. I mean, it's a very different way of understanding, communicating, recording the interactions of policies. So people wondered, well, this this data is great, but what do we do with it? And so it took a while to you know create some products that we could show people and then demonstrate that you know they were understanding, communicating, changing, leveraging policy based on a stronger foundation of evidence. So, you know, we, we made some changes. We've informed the creation of new training policies. We've supported updates to strategic plans. My prior agency, we used it for legislative ingest. So when the PACT Act or uh, the omnibus bill comes out, we're trying to figure out which leader needs to be pinned the rows to deliver this. We saved two weeks of work by walking it back to other things that aligned to those changes in the law that they already did. So we gave them an evidence-based method of parsing out responsibilities for new legislation. At that point, it went from people saying, this is neat, what do we do with it, to map all my stuff. Beth, you said your main role was a cheerleader. What was kind of some of the feedback that you got from some of the other senior leaders and you know data analysts that could potentially use this or utilize it? Well, I, I learned how to, to work the system, and those lessons learned, we eventually incorporated into a, a really thorough standard operating procedure. So one of the first things that I was doing was like, I need to learn what, what's in Basil's head, because he was the only one who had created this, along with some of his colleagues at his former agency. But I had to learn this process. And by doing that, it was giving me a picture of what's involved. So it's like, we need to do a brain dump. And once we did that, we were able to start to show people how it's done for those who are interested and how to do the analyses from that effort. And, you know, to speak to your question with the the senior leaders, what they were able to get out of it, for example, when we did these proof of concept, we were making decisions around communications campaign, for example, and could we kill two birds with three or four stones? Could we get more bang for our buck if we combine efforts rather than just do one-offs? We could do a larger comprehensive communications campaign. We could show how you know budget requests can be aligned because you know two offices might be doing the same work. And so what are they responsible for? How do they stay in their own lane? And how can they justify asking for additional money because they have been asked to take on more work and they don't have the the additional budget. Things like that really show that once you wrap your arms around all of the obligations and requirements, you have a better understanding and can really speak to those things that are important for you. Because one of the things we don't talk about is the work that you do, other people are dependent upon and the work that other people do, you depend on them. So there is a relationship and you can better see 
that if we have a solid computer network, then we have uptime for the call centers, for example, and then we can provide good services to the citizens. So there, there is an interrelationship and that can really be shown in a visualization as well as in the analysis. So Basil, take me, you know, a couple of years from now, maybe if you, it sound, Beth was trying to get inside your head and it sounds like there's a lot of ideas spinning around on where do you see this all going? So there's a few things that I would like to do that I think it can, it's capable of doing now. And then a few things I think it will be capable of doing, being able to do in the future. So one of the things that is, is say you are a government leader, okay? In the scheme of policy, you exist in your department as a nerve cluster of policy that you own and you direct people, money, and things, and a set of policies to which you deliver value. And another set of policies from which you receive value. So it is a way to dynamically depict the role of a leader within their organization. Another thing that we we talk about is, uh, we've had a few examples of this, but not much, is how we can use this to support resource requests. So the anecdote that I heard from one of the leaders I worked for is she went up to her leader and the leaders asked everybody to provide their resource requests. She did for a brand new office and said, these are my resource requests. This is my plan and my concept of operations. And here is how that plan aligns with the priorities of your office, the secretary, the president of the United States, the PACT Act, the, you know, and so on. And then and her boss looked around the room and asked her peers, where's your pol- where's your strategic alignment? How does your stuff deliver on what me and my boss wants? And, you know, then everyone else kind of gave the polar bear salute because they did not have that body of knowledge that, one, explained what they wanted to do and helped create the thing that she wanted to do. Another thing I'd like to take in the future is helping with grants. You know, we put out grants and... You know, people apply for the grants and they hope the grant fits in what what we want. But behind that grant is an architecture of goals and requirements and priorities and metrics and that sort of thing. But we don't bake that into the grant process, just like we don't bake it, bake it into the policy process. But if we did that, we could help uh, charitable organizations or these applicants reverse engineer the scope of their proposal to deliver that value to plans and goals and objectives deliberately. So there is a mindfulness that's available to strategic communication and policymaking due to applying this knowledge base. We're also looking at AI. Basically, the steps to doing the research and development of the IVN is you find a bunch of policies. You have someone break them down into their deliverables. You take a pair of two policies and you figure out how the deliverables move each other forward. Then you aggregate all of that into a list of recommendations. So based on how these things align, we think you should do this for STRATCOM, this for implementation, and this for policymaking. AI can assist in, I think, in all of those steps. AI could go and figure out, well, what source documents are missing? What's not in the library? What are the alignments that we find? How do we break down a piece of policy into the deliverables? So AI can, I think, holds a lot of promise for all of those things. It might even get to a place where we have an AI searching all the governance documents 
and making these connections themselves and someone who's in my role would basically just be validating the alignments that it found. Beth, does this have the chance of making your job easier as well? And also, if you could tell me, you know, how, how do if a manager is hearing this or a government leader is hearing this and, you know, have has never heard of this before, how can they find out more information of utilizing this new tool? Well, it's not just a tool, but it's an initiative. And I, I do want to give a shout out to the people at USDA who believed in this work. Through knocking on a lot of doors, we met some wonderful people like Paul Quimby and Latanya Anderson at the Department of Interior. We were introduced to a wonderful group of thought leaders, and they introduced us to Jason Traquair. And over time, the chief data officer at APHIS took this on and set this up as a flagship effort to help APHIS and ultimately USDA. We have over 100 volunteers, including interns, beginning tomorrow, the 1st of February, we'll have a, a new opportunity for an intern cohort. And in a couple of months, we'll have uh, an opportunity for detailees, both of which are available through OPM's open opportunities. But for folks who are interested, who are in the federal government or who are undergrad or graduate students, we would welcome them for their participation. Jason Require has a community of practice for program and project management, which has many thousands of people who are involved and to be able to export that into the Growing Good in Government initiative, which is now something that ATARC as a public-private along with academia. So we have monthly working group meetings. Our next one is at the end of February on February 27th. So we would love for people to join us. We have a LinkedIn group. So there are lots of opportunities for people to learn more. And in fact, we'll be giving a, another presentation in April at the University of Maryland's Project Management Symposium. So there are lots of opportunities to learn more and uh, to get involved. We would love to be able to export this and see and help people learn more how it would be relevant in their innovation ecosystem. Well, a lot on the horizon. Yes, please do send me that information. We would definitely love to post that along with this interview. Basil, I'll give you the last word. Thank you. So the IVN is just one part of this larger Growing Good and Government initiative. It's led by my colleague, Jason Traquair. We're plugging that into this, this overall Growing Good and Government initiative to integrate it with maturing and evolving policy and program management, not just uh, for the USDA, but to try to improve best practices, you know, improve the training, the, the body of knowledge that we use as federal program managers and policy makers, uh, you know, project leads, that sort of thing. So it is, this is part of a much larger initiative and scheme for improving how we develop policies, plans, programs, budgets, all this stuff for greater ability and greater good. Basil White, a senior informaticist with the Agriculture Department's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service. You also heard Beth Martin, a digital services expert with the Office of Personnel Management, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. 
Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. 
So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people 
on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career. 
and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.